Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Morning. How are we doing? Good. I haven't seen you guys since last year. So, anyone? No? Okay, fine. That's whatever. I thought that was funny. It's whatever. Not even a dad, that's true. I love all these kids like they're my own, so I get to make the jokes. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the lead pastors here at the District Church. For those of you who don't know me, it is a joy to open up God's Word and worship with you guys. Um, if you have your Bibles, uh, we are jumping back into the book of Luke. Uh, we are going to be taking a look at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Um, <clears throat> and it is New Year's. Um, what's funny is I, I'm pretty sure I will get a meme sometime this week about today uh, that says, happy let your youth pastor preach weekend, everyone. Um, <laughs> that one got a laugh. Okay. Um, it's typically what I get, but if you are familiar with um, kind of how our preaching calendar goes, New Year's has been the day that I've been able to preach the last couple of years, and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, mostly because I do love New Year's resolutions, lists, things that can help me be better at who I am as well as a believer. Um, But what I have liked to do in the last couple of years is not so much give us resolutions, but help encourage us to live with a rule of life. And what a rule of life ultimately does is helps us create habits and forms things in our lives that over time, as Kelsey was talking about earlier this morning, grow more into the image of Christ. And so an example that I often give is a few years ago, um, I was troubled with my own prayer life as well as my scripture reading because I grew up at a, in church where if you read and you didn't receive something from the Holy Spirit in that miraculous moment, that that wasn't good enough. Or if you were praying and, and the Holy Spirit didn't sit down next to you and kind of fill you in on what's going on, then it, it wasn't worth it. And so I was really discouraged by my own time of prayer, my own time of reading God's Word, and I, I, wanted, I wanted something different. And so I was challenged by a pastor uh, by this phrase, embrace the ordinary, pray for the extraordinary. And so if you come to my house, I have a chalk wall in my kitchen, and, and that phrase is up above uh, everything that I see every morning, embrace the ordinary. And for me, the challenge is to embrace the ordinary of reading God's Word every day, being in prayer every day. And if you understand the um, view of compound interest, right, where the more and more you put into the bank, the more and more it begins to grow based on interest. And so in 30, 40, 50 years, what you're doing now has grown exponentially. And so my hope for us in our rules of life, in our habits that we are forming, is that when we look back 20, 30, 40 years ago, we can see those ordinary days of just reading God's Word and being in His Word and being in prayer are good for our souls, and they're growing us into the image of Christ. And so that is why I look forward to actually preaching New Year's Day uh, every year. And we're, as I said, jumping back into our Luke narrative, but we're also walking through our Epiphany series. And so if you're familiar with our Epiphany calendar, it, it comes uh, midway through Christmas and goes all the way up until Lent. So it's that 40 days uh, before Lent 
where we are celebrating the life of Christ, but also what it means for Christ to overflow out of us as believers. And so through God's um, really kind of um, what ordained irony, I would say, um, we really, really were lacking on our preaching calendar this year. And so we were like, hey, let's just jump back into Luke, and we're going to go with this through our Epiphany series. And we just so happened to walk into the Sermon on the Mount, which is where Jesus would call us to, to live in such a way that we are showing that we are citizens of God's kingdom. And so through God's ordination, we are going to be walking through that in the next couple of weeks. Today, we'll take a look at these blessings and woes, or if you're familiar with Matthew's version, this is the Beatitudes. And then we'll be taking a look at, in the next coming weeks as well, how to love our enemies, how to speak to and call out and exhort one another, how to bear fruit, as well as how to have God as our sure foundation. But this morning, as we look at blessings and woes, what I want us to take a look at, and this is really going to be my main point that I'm going to flow everything out of this morning, is that citizens of God's kingdom have a heart transformed by the grace of God. Citizens of God's kingdom have their heart transformed by the grace of God. And this heart transformation then flows out into everything that we're going to be covering in the next couple of weeks. And so my hope when we talk about a rule of life or these habits that we begin to form is that we take a look at the heart of a citizen of God's kingdom. And we try to emulate that every single day knowing that we are not going to be perfect, but we can rest in the grace that has been given to us in Christ. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, you are so good to us. And as we'll see in your word today, you are a gracious and merciful God that saves and redeems your people. But you don't just leave us where we are. You transform us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. As we begin this new year, help us to know that we are truly blessed, but not blessed the way the world defines it. We are blessed because we are your sons and daughters. Lord, forgive us where we fall short of remembering that, and help us to be reminded through your word and through your people that we are your children, and you are our greatest joy. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this beautiful truth this morning. And as your servant, speak through me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It is for your glory and our joy that we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we jump into these blessings and woes that Luke is going to give us, I want to ask a question. What do you think of when you hear the word blessed? Anyone? Yeah, that, we did do a series a couple years ago that walked through the Beatitudes and we called it hashtag blessed. It's a dark spot in our time. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It was a great series. What, but what do you think of when you hear the word blessed? Anyone? Nothing? What's that? Wealthy? Yeah. Anybody think of being healthy in a good frame? Healthy? Okay, yeah. All right. Yeah, exactly. Um, we can be considered blessed if we, you know, have good family, good friends, enjoying a good meal. Some of us might have made it here without hitting any red lights, and we would say we were blessed this morning, right? But the scriptures show us that blessedness is something deeper. 
if we're familiar with this phrase or with this word blessed, we might have heard that it actually means in the Greek happy. But not in a happy way, in happiness, the way the world defines it, because that is often shallow. And the, the way the world defines happiness can often be fleeting and be feeling. But the way that scriptures define blessed and, and a, a true sense of happiness is being favored by God. Being favored by God. And so true blessing is only found in abiding in Christ and being a citizen of his kingdom and, being in, and, and finding favor in him. And we only find that favor in Christ through his grace. So this is what Jesus means when he tells his disciples that you are blessed. And this is why he can say that you are blessed when you're poor. You're blessed when you are hungry. You are blessed when you're weeping. You are blessed when you're persecuted because ultimately you have found favor in God. So let's take a look at these four blessings. And I want to start first with the context of who Jesus is speaking to before we jump into the blessings he gives. So starting in verse 17, and if you're not already there, if you're turning there, uh, just a quick reminder, uh, chapter 6, we have seen, especially before Advent, that this is a, a new way that Jesus is calling his disciples to live. This new mentality connected with the Old Testament, really, the way that God has designed his people to live, started with, if you remember Ransford's sermon on rest, and that believers are to practice sabbatical rest, but we find our rest ultimately in Jesus. And then we see Jesus calling the 12 disciples as his apostles and then ultimately sending them out. And then finally we get to, in verse 17, Jesus ministering to this great crowd. In verse 17, it says, He came down, from, came down with them, his disciples, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Now I want to stop there before we get into the blessings. I want you to see that Jesus is speaking to his disciples specifically, but also to these great crowds. And he's getting ready to tell them this is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. But I want to point out as well, these four blessings and four woes that Jesus is going to preach to his disciples are not meant to be separated. These aren't different types of Christians. Oftentimes we can look at this Sermon on the Mount or we can look at Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, there are poor in spirit. Oh, there are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, there are those who are persecuted. No, what Jesus is trying to say here is these characteristics for the kingdom is all together. So this is how we are striving to live. There aren't four types of Christians that are receiving the blessings. There aren't four types of disciples who are deceived that are, are receiving woes. These are one particular people group, believers who are following Jesus. And that would extend to us today. But I want to give this warning as well. Jesus doesn't just say those who are blessed receive these promises. He also reveals woes or curses, as the Old Testament would point to, 
to those who call themselves disciples, but their hearts aren't truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in these blessings and woes, as we and the rest of the Sermon of the Mount will point through, describe distinguishing characteristics of people who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so I want us to take a look at those distinguishing characteristics that we see here. So the first one that we find in verse 20 is those who are blessed because they are poor. Verse 20 says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now here's what I want us to understand this morning from this verse and the verses to come because we can begin to see that Jesus might be, if we take it for face value, speaking of very surface level things. But that would be odd because if we are also familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus is talking about spiritual realities. And that's where most people will land, including myself. And there's really two ways to kind of read Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that Luke wrote his version word for word, and then Matthew then interpreted it in Matthew 5. And he used different phrases that really was getting at the meaning of what Jesus was saying. Or the second one, which is after some study this week where I land, is that Jesus preached this sermon and these metaphors constantly and to different people over time. This was something that he preached often. And so you'll have a different sermon in Matthew, and then you'll have a different sermon in Luke, but they're both saying the same thing. And so this is where I land. You can do some study on that yourself, but I think that you would probably land with where I'm at as well, that Jesus is not speaking about surface level or economical things here when he says, blessed are you who are poor. But he's doing the same thing that he did in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount there. He's getting after a theological or a disposition of the heart. Biblically, we see this through scriptures. That's why I'm confident in saying this is where I would land. Because what the scriptures would consistently point us to is our heart disposition. And when the scripture talks about our heart, it is consistently speaking of us as a whole person. That's why Jesus can say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so biblically, we see throughout God's word that our heart is the thing that needs to change. And so when Jesus says here, and he starts his sermon here, and says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, What he is saying is, blessed are you who are humble, humble in spirit. As Matthew would go on to say, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't care for the poor. This doesn't mean that we don't pursue the oppressed or those who are treated unjustly. The scriptures are very clear that we have full commands to take care of the poor and the oppressed and those who are treated unjustly. But here, Jesus' first command is to take a look at our spiritual condition from the heart. Now, if you were to think of one sinful attitude that the heart consistently produces in people and has kept people from coming to Christ, what do you think that one one sinful attitude would be? What's that? Yeah, pride. That is the answer. This attitude is one that keeps people from coming to Christ, but it is also one attitude that, world, that our world loves to spin into a good example, right? Oftentimes we can find pride even endearing, 
right? Ricky Bobby, if you ain't first, you're last, right? We, we all understand that phrase. We all laugh at it. <laughs> but we as a nation and people, we, we celebrate this type of arrogance, right? The self-sufficiency and pride. And at times we can find it endearing and maybe even allow it into our own lives. From athletes to movies to TV shows to billionaires, and the list can go on and on. We as people celebrate this type of pride and arrogance. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus' Jesus's first command, Jesus' first blessing is for those who have humbled themselves. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who know that what they have, they do not deserve. I mean, isn't this a part of Mary's song that Luke opens up with in chapter 2? Listen to what she says. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. The first attitude of the disciple of Christ must be one of humility must be one who has humbled themselves and recognizes that their walk with Christ begins with this posture. Like the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless fly to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, watch me, Savior, or I die. Citizens of God's kingdom have their heart transformed by the grace of God, and this causes a posture of humility because they know that they have received an undeserved grace. But the next characteristic that we find in verse 21 is that blessed are those who are hungry. This is what Jesus says, blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. But again, since we know that Jesus is talking about spiritual conditions, this isn't a physical hungering that Jesus is calling for. In Matthew, the hungering and thirsting is a call to righteousness. Here, Jesus is talking about what do we long for? What does your heart reveal that your greatest desire is? And where does your soul hunger? For the citizens of God's kingdom, it should be righteousness. It should be a longing to be sanctified and to look more like Christ every single day. It's this type of hunger that David talks about in Psalm 42 when he says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. It's a picture of desperation. This is the type of longing for righteousness that we should have a desire so deep within us that we want to see every ounce of unrighteousness and filthiness of our old self uprooted from our lives. That we would wake up every day like David and pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see where there may be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting that this would be our prayer, this would be our longing and desire that we would be more righteous every single day. I love what Brad Bigney, a pastor down in Kentucky, has to say. 
He says, kingdom people who have received God's righteousness as their legal standing, meaning that they are justified by Christ's righteousness. They long to see God's righteousness in their own lives to make them more like Christ, and they desire to be holy and to be done with sin. Do we long for that, guys? Do we have that hunger and thirst for righteousness? And do we long for the day that sin is uprooted in our lives and that we are fully sanctified in Christ? So it's a characteristic that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. The third characteristic is those who weep. Look again at verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Flowing from this hunger for righteousness is a mourning. A mourning of the sin in this life. It's not a mourning of our circumstances. It's not a mourning of what has happened to us physically or mentally or what we've experienced. Although as believers we are called to mourn in times of mourning. When there's loss and death and sickness, we are called to mourn with our brothers and sisters. But even more, what Jesus is getting after here is a mourning of our sin. The citizen of the kingdom sees their sin and they mourn over it. But I want to get really specific here because the scriptures, when we talk or when it talks about mourning over our sin, it's not just a mourning of a general sin. When we see God reveal our sin in Scripture, He is very specific, right? If you think about Isaiah 6, what happens when He stands before God? What does He say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I stand amongst a people of unclean lips. There is a specificity about His sin that He recognizes standing in front of a holy God. In Psalm 51, we see this perfect example as well where God sends the prophet Nathan to David to reveal his sin against Bathsheba as well as having her husband Uriah killed. There is a specific reality of David's sin that is being revealed, not just a general understanding that we are sinners. But listen to David's confession after this revelation of his sin is brought to him. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. After Nathan reveals to David his sin, this is his response. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now on the surface, <clears throat> if you think about this story, it would seem odd that David would start his confession repenting towards the Lord. Because David sinned against so many people. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against his own military. He sinned against his own people as a king. It's really hard in this story to not think of anybody that he did not sin against here. And yet he has the audacity to say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But here's the reality of David's confession. He's exactly right. What makes sin, 
not just his sin, but our sin, so heinous and so sinful, is because that it goes against a holy and righteous God. It defies a holy and righteous God. Is it awful when we hurt others? Absolutely. Is it sinful when we slander our brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Do we need to repent of those things? Yes. But first and foremost, in any sin that we commit, whether it is telling a white lie or having sex before marriage or cheating on our income taxes, whatever it may be, the most offended party is God. That's why we must have over anything else God's forgiveness or we have nothing. And the citizens of God's kingdom recognize this and they mourn over their sin because they know it is an offense to a righteous and holy God and they long for the day for it to be fully gone. So a characteristic of the kingdom is those who mourn and weep over their sin. And they can laugh because they know that this is not the end. That one day when Christ returns, all will be made new and their sin will be no more. And then finally, we get to this last blessing, although it doesn't seem like it's a blessing. Verse 22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. The final blessing tells us that we are blessed when we are persecuted on the account of the Son of Man. Any of you feel kind of weird about that? Jesus says you're blessed when you're persecuted. Right? Is there any blessing that may want to be, you and I may want to be removed from? when it comes to these blessings or these beatitudes? I mean, if we could negotiate with Jesus this morning, wouldn't we be like, hey, can we, can we take this one out? But this is the reality of the believer, right? Jesus tells us this in John 15, 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they will, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And logically, as we walk through these four blessings, we should have an understanding that Jesus is showing us this is what follows the life of a believer. It will lead to persecution. When we live a humble life that is hungry for righteousness, that is mourning over our sin, we're living in a way that is different from this world. And we will receive persecution. Now, I know we live in America, and I know that we sometimes think that persecution comes because we are standing up for our rights. No, we're probably being jerks. But the reality is, when we live according to what God says the citizen of the kingdom should live like or look like, persecution will come. And it is coming, and it has come. Even in America, we are seeing more animosity towards Christianity when we are faithful to the gospel. But we must be faithful to the gospel. We must not be jerks, but we must be faithful to the gospel. And citizens of the kingdom have their heart transformed by the grace of God, and in the midst 
of persecution, they can have peace and comfort and hope because they know that this is light and momentary affliction that is ultimately preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So these are the four characteristics of the citizen of God's kingdom whose heart has been transformed. Those who are poor and humble, who hunger with deep pangs for righteousness, who mourn over their sin and are comforted when persecution comes because of Christ. And this is why they can be blessed because they have found favor with God. But Jesus doesn't stop here. He then gives four woes that contrast these blessings. Like he's saying, hey, here is the heart transformed by the grace of God. Now let me contrast the one who is being formed into the image and pattern of this world. And if you call yourself a disciple and these are characteristics of your heart, let this be a warning to you. Because we like to think that Jesus is the only one who's going to give blessings and not give us any curses. But this isn't the case. Jesus doesn't just pronounce blessings to everyone, but only to those who are a part of his kingdom. And we find this throughout Scripture. And I want this, these warnings to be a check engine light for us. You guys do realize that a check engine light can mean that your engine is about to explode, right? But it doesn't always mean that it's about to explode. It does mean that, hey, you need to check on this before it gets destroyed. And so I hope these woes can be a, more of a check engine light for our souls and our hearts. So these are characteristics of the citizens of this world. Verse 24 says, Woe to the rich, for you have received your consolation. I want to be careful here, again, because we're not talking about physical or earthly things. We're talking about spiritual realities. The Bible does not condemn wealth, and neither is Jesus here. We see these, again, this is, is why we should understand our scriptures and the context in which scriptures is written, right? Abraham was very wealthy. Job was one of the wealthiest mans in scripture. We can move on even into the New Testament. There are people in Jesus' life who are very wealthy and it is not condemned. In fact, one of my favorite, favorite parables of the, pro, uh, the, the parable of the prodigal of son, prodigal son, well, I'll get it out. The father is considered very, very wealthy and very rich and is yet never condemned for his wealthiness. So wealth in itself, in and of itself, is not condemned. But because this is a spiritual reality, a spiritual condition of the heart that Jesus is getting at, what he is describing is someone who desires wealth above all else, whose heart is captured by wealth, who is not humble, but is proud and haughty and will do anything they can to reach these riches. And when they reach these riches, they then become even more haughty and more prideful. And in their pridefulness begin to oppress others with their wealth. So Jesus is getting at the haughty and proud who desire wealth above all else. That is their heart's desire. The second woe is to those who are full. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. 
Again, contrasted against those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, these are people who are full and self-sufficient in this life. They don't need to be pursuing or having a heart of hunger and thirsting after righteousness because they believe that they've already found it and been filled up. This is the kind of self-righteousness that Jesus is constantly after when it comes to the Pharisees. But even in today's age, this is the type of self-righteousness that can even live in our church. There are people who have picked up on what church lingo sounds like, who are able to live and come into church and look like on the outside they are pursuing righteousness, they are pursuing the things of God, but inwardly they are not. Their hearts have not been transformed by the grace of God and they come in week after week, or they come into community group, or they come into Sunday morning, but they're deceiving themselves. And as Dwayne has said multiple times, get a better hobby. If you're here this morning and that is you, there are plenty of other things that you can do than come to church and deceive yourself that you are in the kingdom. And if you are here this morning and you are deceiving yourself, this is an opportunity to repent and believe in the grace of God that will bring you into the kingdom that you no longer have to live self-deceived. But this is who Jesus is talking about, who find themselves full, not needing any type of sustenance from the word. Their heart is haughty, and they are full. The next one that we see, those who laugh now. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This type of laughter is what the world, or what the Bible would describe a worldly joy, right? This type of heart that is full of worldly pleasures and excess. So those, and, and, and this can be described, as one pastor put it, more like a party culture. And it's not necessarily a party culture that we find in college, but there are plenty of party cultures in our workplaces, in the world around us now, who love to drink and eat and, and do all that they can in excess. And they find full pleasure in this world, and they're satisfied in it, and they celebrate these pleasures, especially the pleasures that God would condemn in the scriptures. He says, woe to you who overindulge now, who find your fill now, who laugh at the things now, because in the end you will weep. What he's saying is you're going to find all that you want and desire here on earth, yes, but what does it gain you in eternity? It's like, I believe it's in Mark 8, man can gain the whole world but lose his soul. It's that type of mentality that we are full and we are laughing because we have only found pleasure in this world. And it's a fleeting joy, as Solomon would tell us in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, he would say. And then finally, he says, Woe to those when all speak well of you, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This, again, is not just being... This is not, not about how people speak of you because there is a way for believers to be thought of well by outsiders. We see this as actually a criteria for elders in 1 Timothy 3. 
that they would be well thought of by outsiders. But there is a difference here that Jesus is speaking on. And what he's speaking about here is the heart of a person who is a people pleaser. A person who always wants to please anybody and everybody with their words. And here's why there's a woe given to them. Jesus tells us that these people pleasers rarely, if ever, will speak of him in the way that the Bible describes who he is. People pleasers will rarely offend or confront or rebuke for the sake of the gospel. People pleasers will rarely, if ever, preach that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that he does call everyone to repentance of their sin and to change and conform their lives to what the scriptures would call us to live in obedience to his word. So woe to those when all men speak well of you. Yes, as believers, we should live in such a way that people can think of us as gracious and kind, but we don't want to be people pleasers to where we are not proclaiming the true gospel that the scriptures give us. Where we rarely offend, we rarely confront, we rarely rebuke those, and we rarely preach that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And so these are the four woes that Jesus gives to those who are not of his kingdom and pursue the kingdom of this world. So I want to close with this question. Which kingdom do you find yourself belonging to? If you're a believer here this morning, does your life reflect that of humility? That of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, a, a sorrow and mourning over your own sin, a steady perseverance in an increasingly hostile world? Or does your life look like the one Jesus gives the woes to? Pursuing riches, being satisfied in the here and now, laughing and having worldly joy, or living as a people pleaser and not truly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love the way Warren Wearsby puts it. These four woes all share a common truth. You take what you want from this life and you pay for it. If you want immediate wealth, fullness, laughter, and popularity, you can get it. But there is a price to pay, and that is all you get. Jesus did not say these things were wrong, but he did say being satisfied in them is its own judgment. So let these woes be a warning to us. And let us recognize that citizens of the kingdom have their heart transformed. That we would pursue humility. That we would pursue righteousness. That we would mourn over our sin. That we would be comforted even in the midst of persecution. I mentioned Bragg Bigney before. I, I want to give an illustration that I heard uh, from him this week on the Sermon on the Mount that I absolutely love and I want to close with, especially with a sermon like this that gives blessings and gives woes and, and sometimes can feel a little bit harsh. He talks about the scriptures like we've read today and, and texts like the Sermon on the Mount in a way of a flashlight and a floodlight. We take a flashlight maybe down to our basement or to the backyard and we're trying to spotlight one specific area of what we're looking for, right? We might be looking for a hammer 
or a nail or you know some type of appliance so we use a flashlight to, to narrow in on that specific thing we're looking for but when we use a floodlight what we're trying to do is we're trying to light up a large area we're trying to highlight and bring light into the darkness into a large space so that we can be fixated on that large thing and so is the same when it comes to these types of scriptures and the Sermon on the Mount as they help us. And they help us by shining a spotlight on our sin. Remember, not just being a general, but a specific sin that we can bring to the Lord where our heart is not being conformed or transformed to what a citizen of the kingdom should look like. But then these scriptures throw a floodlight on what Christ has done for us on the cross. So that when we look at texts like this, we don't have to beat ourselves. We don't have to try to be harder on ourselves to, to work better or to do more. Because we can look at the floodlight that is on Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. That's our security. That he lived the life that we could never live and fulfilled all the things that we needed in order to be righteous. So when we look at this, this version of the Sermon on the Mount, or we look at Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, we can see Jesus fulfilled all of those things perfectly for us. Right? In his humility, he took on flesh and condescended and became man. He lived righteously and perfectly. He was one who, as Isaiah 53 says, was afflicted with grief. And he perfectly submitted, even in the midst of persecution, as the book of Hebrews would say, he had joy set before him. And in this joy, he endured the cross for our sake. It is his perfect obedience and his righteousness that is then imputed to us for those who have repented and placed our trust in him as Lord. He's how we've become citizens of the kingdom, and he is how we are truly blessed and find favor with the Lord because of what Christ has done for us. So my hope as we leave this morning and we go into the next week and the next coming weeks and the years to come, however long the Lord gives us, I, I hope that as we again go back to this idea of this rule of life, that we would let these passages, we would let the word be a lamp, be a flashlight that helps expose sin, but it also is a floodlight that points back to the finished work of Christ on our behalf, for our, for our place, and that our hearts would slowly be transformed into his image, and that we would live as faithful citizens of his kingdom. And another way that we shine that flashlight on sin and floodlight on what Christ has done each week is through the act of communion. So in a moment, I'm going to come, or I'm going to have you come down and, and take these means of grace. But what I want you to see when you come and take these means of grace, it should be a floodlight for you because it is a sign of the covenant that God has made with us through his son. And through it, we see the glory of God's grace and strength and provision that our sins have been forgiven and our sins have been covered, and we have been made clean. This is the floodlight that points back to Christ's work on the cross. But it also acts as a flashlight. 
When we come to communion, we should, as Paul would tell us, examine ourselves. We should examine ourselves for our own sin, where we have defied or sinned against a holy God. We should examine our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we should examine our own hearts that are we truly a part of this kingdom? Have we put our faith in Christ? And so the word encourages us to do these things. So I'm going to invite you up to grab the elements and then I'm going to give some time for you guys to examine your hearts this morning and then we will continue to worship through song and communion and celebrate the finished work that Christ has done for us. So come and grab the elements and I'll give some time to pray.